Let's get this party started. Well, hello everyone, and welcome back to the April edition of the Tinsel Tunes podcast. And also a big welcome if you're new, if this is the first time you've heard of the podcast. My name is Dwayne, and I host the podcast from out of New Zealand. That's why you hear this chap with a funny accent. Before we get further into the episode, I would just like to do a little bit of a language warning. As we are covering the fairy tale of New York, and as we know there is some profanity in the song, um, there will be profanity in this episode. So if there are young children listening, just bear that one in mind. It's basically the language that you would hear in the song anyway, but still some people are sensitive to that sort of language. And in this episode, we're also going to cover the top five most popular songs used in animated Christmas light displays. And I'm also going to play the first chapter in the audio version of the Christmas Carol that I got as probably one of my first vinyls in my new Christmas vinyl collection. Also, don't forget to check out the brand new tinseltunes.com website. That's right, I've redesigned the website. It's pretty much got the same info on there that I had before, but pop on over, have a bit of a look-see around, tell me what you think. There's some information on there that you might find useful, like how to buy merch, like t-shirts and stuff like that, as well as links to my streaming on Twitch. I'm also thinking of streaming on YouTube and perhaps Facebook, which is where most of you guys are, and you might want to come and watch me play drums and chat. I also hope to be doing some YouTube videos, maybe some reactions, I'm not too sure yet. It seems to be a thing that uh, has been asked for by more than just my podcast, and you might just want to watch me on other people's podcasts as well there's maybe a bit of that coming up soon so there's a whole bunch of things in the works as well as the new website don't forget to come and follow us on the facebook page to get updates and i do post a little bit on instagram not as much as i would like but i'll try and up my game i now have a dedicated setup at home where i can just sit down and do some recording and it's got christmas lights around the monitors and all that sort of carry on just to bring Christmas in all year round. I've been wearing Christmas socks all through the year and funny last I work in a place of about 300 people and last week quite a few commented on the Christmas socks and when I said to them yes I'm going to wear them all year round to keep the spirit alive and they said oh, are you a bit of a Christmas nut and I said you know you just don't know the half of it so uh, then that got the discussion running about the podcast and the Christmas lights and everything else. They live in the Christmas spirit 24 7 365 days of the year and I'm glad to bring you guys along for the ride. Right so that's enough chitter chatter let's get on with this episode. So I don't think I've covered a song as divisive as this one. That is to say, some people really love it and other people really loathe it. The loathing, I think, either comes from the language used in the song, perhaps the style of the song, or that they're not fans of the Pogues to begin with. And for some, it is just the theme of the song, as in it is a song without snow, Santa, snowmen, or reindeer. This one 
some would say is more about what a reality is for a lot of people. It's a hopeless, dark, drunken Christmases of broken dreams and stolen promises. But the story of the song is actually quite fascinating and quite a lengthy one. So I'll try to make this make some sense. I'll condense it down so the podcast doesn't run on for too long and still maintain a relative amount of detail. But I'll also link a video in the show notes to a very interesting documentary video, which I verified a lot of the information that I'd found on other websites. So the song was written by Jim Finer, the banjo player, and Shane McGowan, lead vocalist and founder of The Pogues, and featured singer-songwriter Kirsty McColl on vocals. I thought this was going to be a straightforward story, but it's quite the journey. There is some disagreement around the origin of who came up with the idea of the Christmas song. After gaining some success in the United States, The Pogues were looking for a number one hit. These are the two origin stories. The first one is Shane McGowan insisted that it arose as a result of a wager made by the Pogues producer at the time, Elvis Costello, and the band would not be able to write a number one Christmas single. And the second origin story is that while the Pogues manager Frank Murray has stated that it was originally his idea that the band should try and write a Christmas song, as he thought it would be interesting. This is the tale of two stories, one for the Pogues and one for Kirsty McColl both happening at the same time, and the men and chances that brought them together. The song took two years of writing and one month of recording. First up, the song was written by singer-songwriter and Irishman Shane McGowan, who is the lead singer and founding member of the Pogues. Shane came from the punk scene of the late 1970s, but one of his first loves was Irish folk music, but infused with a punk sound and invented Irish folk punk. Originally called the New Republicans, they changed their name to Pogue Mahone, which in Gaelic means kiss my ass. At the same time, Kirsty McColl was playing in a band called The Drug Addicts, but didn't enjoy that very much and wasn't happy. So she went solo and signed as a solo artist. This allowed her to experiment with other styles of music like folk, blues and country. The pieces were slowly falling into place. First up, there was a man named Peter Doggerty. Peter was a videographer and a huge fan of the Pogues, and he shot the band's first gig in America on film, and went on to film and direct the Fairytale of New York video. While at this gig, Peter met actor and also huge fan Matt Dillon. By this time, future Fairytale and New York producer Steve Lillywhite had already met Kirsty McColl three years earlier while producing Simple Minds. Kirsty was there doing the backing vocals and shortly after this they were married. Kirsty's career was also blooming. Back to the Pogues. They were gaining popularity and success but the management team wanted that big hit to break into the mainstream. Rather than cover one, as mentioned at the start of this episode, manager Frank Murray wondered how they would do on a Christmas song or a bet by Elvis Costello. Either way, this resulted in the banjo player Jim Finer and Shane getting together to start writing a duet. At that point, bass player Caitlin O'Royden was the female singer in mind. After a more commercial sounding attempt about a sailor missing his wife, Jim scrapped it when his wife said it sounded too corny. So Jim came up with the idea of a couple down on their luck after emigrating to a 1940s America from Ireland. 
When he presented it to Shane, Shane then came up with the New York connection. Although, as stated by co-writer Shane McGowan, really, the story could apply to any couple who went anywhere and found themselves down on their luck. Just to make a long story short, Shane was impressed and inspired by the Pogues' trip to New York, in particular the life his ancestors made for themselves after emigrating from Ireland. Here is the original version of Caitlin O'Royden and producer Elvis Costello. I'll play a couple of different snippets, one to show you how the intro was changed, and especially the piano, and then also with Caitlin's versions of the vocals. Christmas Eve, babe, in the drug tank, an old man said to me, don't think I'll see another one. At this point, the song didn't have a name. Elvis came up with Christmas Eve in the Drunk Tank. Shane didn't like that too much, and while looking at a book he had, which was titled Fairytale of New York, blurted out, what about Fairytale of New York? Incidentally, the book is about a young man who comes to New York from Ireland, written by J.P. Donlevy in 1973. Shane actually met J.P. back in Ireland and mentioned that his father was a huge fan. JP loved the instrumental but realised it didn't have anything to do with his books. The song however was almost shelved as it struggled to come together due to the band not being able to play it and time fast running out to get it done by Christmas. But the band persisted and kept touring which enabled them to get tighter as a band and they kept working on the song by putting it in their sets. The song slowly evolved but another hurdle wasn't far away Turing took its toll on the bassist and singer Caitlin O'Royden and she left the band and married Elvis Costello. The band then replaced Caitlin with bass player Daryl Hunt and in 1986 the song no longer had a female lead. Another hurdle was that Shane got sick with pneumonia and suffered from hallucinations while staying in Scandinavia and this did though give him time to nail the lyrics. In the summer of 1987, recording was due to commence and they still didn't have a lead female voice. This is where producer Steve Lillywhite comes into the picture. Remember I mentioned him before? He had married Kirsty McColl earlier on and the band went into the studio to lay down the instruments. Steve was used to producing stadium acts such as Simple Minds and U2, so this was something different. 
The band had done the hard yakka, as we say here down under, that means hard work, and had become a successful tight unit. Apparently, Steve relished the idea of getting a band at the height of their career with a different sound. But Steve also had a secret weapon, and his wife Kirsty McCall. However, at this time, she wasn't an obvious choice. While researching this, I found out that she had deliberating stage fright, which got worse while touring Ireland. Her cure for stage fright came in 1987, after having a huge hit in 1985 with a cover of Billy Bragg's New England, that cure came in the form of The Fairy Tale of New York. While visiting her husband Steve in the studio where he was recording Fertile in New York, Steve suggested Kirsty have a go at singing the female lead. While at his home recording studio, Steve had Kirsty sing the missing lyrics to the backing track. This is producer Steve and ex-manager Frank talking about how Kirsty got involved in the project. This is from the documentary that I mentioned earlier on that you can find in the show notes. There'll be more of these inserted through this article. Steve had a recording studio at his house and took the demo back for Kirsty to try out. So I, I, I played it to Kirsty and then cleaned the sections of, of where she should sing. So she, she responded to his vo- vocal as if he was there, but, you know, he wasn't there and she didn't uh, ever sing it with him. You promised me Broadway was waiting for me. You were handsome. When the band finished playing, they howled out for more. And they did some work on the, the home studio, and they came in with this, this vocal on it, and it just sounded perfect, you know, just perfect. The boys of the NYPD choir still singing Galway Bay. And then he brought it back and played it to us, and it was like, hang on, this is, like, really good. That's it, you know, bingo. The song was eventually released on the 23rd of November 1987 and it was included on the album If I Should Fall from Grace with God. The band members on this song were as follows and many brought different instruments to the song as well as the rest of the album. So first up we have Shane McGowan on vocals, guitar, banjo and bowron, which is one of those frame drums covered in a skin and played with a tipper which is like a double-ended little drumstick. Then we have Jim Finer on banjo, mandola, saxophone, the hurdy-gurdy, guitar and vocals, Andrew Rankin on drums, percussion, harmonica and vocals, Caitlin O'Royden on bass guitar and vocals, Terry Woods on mandolin, Satan, concertina, guitar and vocals, James Fernley on the accordion, mandolin, piano and guitar, Philip Chevron on guitar and vocals, and Spider Stacy's vocals and tin whistle, and there is an imaginary harp player. That is to say that a harp was added into the mix later on. Recording the song wasn't without its problems, one major one being that due to their punk background, some of the musicians couldn't read music. Some have difficulty counting structures, so it made communicating musically very difficult and frustrating. Here's Steve again, talking about Spider Stacy's penny whistle and how it confused him when he was trying to add it to the mix. Everyone talking in the background. Pristine recording. (laughs) 
There you gotta use that, haven't you? <laughs> Spider would do that a lot whenever he made a mistake. Spider Stacy's penny whistle was key to the Pogue sound, but it wasn't an instrument that stadium rock veteran Steve was familiar with. And I'd be mixing away, and every time I'd go back to the beginning and it'd start, I'd go, ooh, that whistle's a bit loud, you know, because I'm not used to hearing it. So I'd always turn, every time I'd, I'd make the whistle quieter and quieter, because of its high-pitchedness, your ear always goes to it. So I'd always keep turning it down. Then the band would come in and go, well, sounds great, Steve, but where's Spider? I'd go, look, there he's really loud. Oh, no, he isn't. Some of the instruments were multi-sampled, like the mandolin, to make the sound thicker, and some instruments were even added in afterwards, like the aforementioned harp. Terry Woods there! During the recordings, certain instruments, like Terry Woods' mandolin, were multiplied to help give the song an epic feel. That mandolin there, we did some massed mandolins, uh, I think maybe even at half speed, where you slowed the tape down and, and you go like brrrr, and when you speed it back up it goes brrrr, like that, much faster. Um, very nice, and that's, uh, I'd forgotten all about that. Damn, I need to remix this song. Now we have a harp. There is no harp player in the Pogues. How did this come about? With the song now completed and recorded, it was time for the music video. As mentioned before, actor Matt Dillon was a huge fan of the Pogues and it was called on by filmmaker and video director Peter Dockerhey, who he had met at one of the Pogues live gigs. Matt was asked to play a police officer who was sick of working his shift and dealing with drunks and was tasked to throw Shane's character into a cell. Peter asked Dylan to play it a little rough when dealing with Shane, but not too rough, which didn't matter as Shane was actually licked up for real, which added to the realism of the video. They used a real police station in New York. In the video, you can see a Santa Claus being booked, with extra Dennis Driscoll holding onto his right arm. That Santa was actually intoxicated and being processed for real. Most of the band that were there were drinking. The police saw Shane was trying to smuggle in a margarita, but they took that off him. As the production was using some of the lower cells for dressing rooms and hanging out, the police were getting quite concerned with the amount of drinking going on, and it was down to a sober Matt Dillon to smooth things out with the police. Here's manager Frank talking a little bit about the experience in the cells. Yeah, yeah, Drunk tank, so down below in, in the tombs here we had um, cells, and they were, um, we were using them as dressing rooms and hang out, you know, a place to hang out before you get called. And uh, it was quite funny because what was going down on in the cells, if anybody had known about it, we would have been put in the cells yeah, and yeah. locked up. And extra Dennis Driscoll. Well, I remember yeah. when Shane walked in, he had a margarita under his jacket and they saw it immediately and they grabbed him and said, no, no, no. We nearly all got arrested as well because we did the, the uh, jail scenes in the real neck yeah? and we were all getting really um, pissed. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the song structure. 
The song is made up in this order. We have the instrumental piano for the intro. We have three verses sung by Shane for the first one, Shane for the second one, and Kirsty for the third one. The fourth verse is both Shane and Kirsty together. The chorus is both Shane and Kirsty. Verse 5 is both Shane and Kirsty. Then we have the chorus again. Then verse 6 is also both Shane and Kirsty. And then we have the outro. The chorus of the song includes the lines The boys of the New York PD choir still singing Galway Bay. In reality, the NYPD police department does not have a choir. The closest thing being the pipes and drums of the NYPD's Emerald Society who are featured in the video for the song. The NYPD pipes and drums did not know Galway Bay and so sang a song that they all knew the words to, which was the Mickey Mouse March, the theme tune for the Mickey Mouse Club TV series. Now obviously this song isn't without its controversy. And on the fifth verse we have Shane and Kirsty doing the I'm pissed off with you interchange. In 2017, Ed Sheeran and Anne Marie released a duet, and this is how they handled that verse. Welcome to 2017 Political Correctness. You're an old gal on junk lying there almost dead on that trip in that bed. You scumbag, you maggot, you cheap lousy blagger. Merry Christmas, you mugger, pray God is our last. The boys in the end. Even Rowan Keating's record company got a bit concerned when he decided to release a version of the song with Moya Brennan, who is the singer from Clannard. And this is their version. Mind you, that isn't as censored as Ed Sheeran's version, but yeah, they changed a few of those keywords, of course. I suppose these artists have to be mindful of the image that they portray. You know, the Pogues, of course, come from a punk background and a sort of bar scene, so it's expected that they would use that language. Where's the likes of Ed Sheeran and Rowan Keating? Not so much. Links to both videos will be in the show notes. So what do the lyrics mean? Basically, it's a pretty simple story. It's the story of a young couple who emigrate from Ireland to New York with dreams of making it big. Things haven't gone so well, and by the fifth verse, they both despise each other. And the sixth verse has a girl blaming the guy for not delivering on his promise on making her dreams come true. I tell you what, I think one of the best lyrics in a song ever are these from the sixth verse. And they go, well, everyone knows how they go. They go. And as the song concludes with an open ending, did they make it? Did their fortunes change? I guess we'll never know. But here's Shane with his thoughts on the ending. 
getting the one of the strengths of the song is that it doesn't tell you everything like what happens in the end can't make it all alone I've built my dreams around you you don't know what happens at the end you know? it's a you know I mean it's 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 unlikely they go get around the Christmas tree and sweat presents but in the end I don't know what happens huh? But it has an uplifting ending, you know what I mean? Like, uh, because love never dies, kind of, you know. So, where are they now? Well, the Pogues are no longer performing. Shane had this to say when he was asked by an interviewer if the band was still active. And he said, we're not. No, saying that, since their 2001 reunion happened, I went back to the Pogues and we grew to hate each other all over again. Adine, I don't hate the band at all. They're friends, I like them a lot. We were friends for years before we joined the band, and we just got a bit sick of each other. We're friends as long as we don't tour together. I've done a hell of a lot of touring, and I've had enough of it. As for Kirsty, unfortunately she died a week before Christmas 2000 in a boating accident in Mexico. She and her sons went diving at a reef which was part of the National Marine Park of Cosmiel. I know I've said that wrong. While diving in a designated area that watercraft were restricted from entering, with the group was a local veteran dive master. As the group was surfacing from a dive, a powerboat moving at high speed entered the restricted area. It is said that Kirsty saw the boat coming before her sons did. Lewis, aged 13 at the time, was not in its path, but Jamie, aged 15, was. She was able to push him out of the way, he sustained minor head and rib injuries, but she was struck by the boat which ran her over. Kirsty suffered severe chest injuries and died instantly. There is a lot more story to this song that I could put in this episode. I would encourage you to watch the documentary on YouTube, which of course is linked in the show notes. And that's where I've got some of this information from for this episode. The ending is particularly touching when friends, band members and family talk about Kirsty. I'll leave these final words by Shane and singer Nick Cave. proud of, of, of us, you know, and and everybody involved in it, you know, and Kirsty, and you know, proud of everybody involved in it, you know. You took my dreams from me when I first found you. It's a great Christmas song. You don't normally get Christmas songs about so utterly hopeless. <laughs> Can't make it all alone, I build my dreams around Christmas Day. Phew, that was a lot of information right there. If one thing I hope for is that this deep dive highlights what can go into a song that many people dismiss in a heartbeat, and perhaps it gives people an insight that they didn't know before, and it brings a new appreciation to this and all the songs that we cover. This month sees the return of our top five list. And this month we're going to do the top five songs to use in an animated Christmas light show. So one of my other Christmas interests is building my animated Christmas light display. To do this, we also use music in the display and synchronize the lights to dance in time with the music using software. 
So I thought I would list some of the songs used and I'll link the videos to YouTube on the show notes so you can also see what these displays look like. The key to these songs working as Christmas light display songs is the fact that they are upbeat, they have a beat, you can make the lights dance to the beat and also do highlighted effects as well. Once again, please pop onto the tinseltunes.com website, go to the show notes for this episode, all of the videos will be linked there. It's the only way that this top five will actually make sense. So let's have a short listen to some of these songs. Number five. Blinding Lights by The Weeknd. This was used for the first time in 2020 and I see it becoming a staple in future displays. Mine included. Here is the ultimate video of the song in action. This is a display by Tom Bejorge. This is Sarajevo by the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. This song was just made for Christmas light shows. It dates back right into the start of this whole phenomenon and is still used to this very day. It has a great slow start which builds up into an explosion of sound and when you pair that up with uh, really awesome Christmas lights there's nothing else like it. It's so beautiful. Number three. Carol of the Bells. And this version has been used since 2007 on many of the classic videos. But I've linked to one that was done in 2019 with the new addressable LED lights. Number 2 Richard Claderman's Music Box Dancer The most famous classic in all the world of music In 2007, Richard Claderman's Music Box Dancer was remixed to include a dance beat and used on a house by Richard Holdman in the United States. The display only had red, white and green colours and was a visual masterpiece. This also happens to be one of my favourite tunes of all time. Honourable mention. So I have two honourable mentions. The first one was also a remix by Richard Holdman and it's Amazing Grace. I once was lost 
band, a song called Hey Come Look At My House, which is a parodied song in the tune of Wizards of Winter by the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Every year for Christmas season I can show my expertise and synchronized displays of Christmas lights. That's our all-time tune music. Now I'm so excited, all my neighbors are delighted for my synchronized display of Christmas lights. That's Christmas music. For lighting manuals to program 500 channels for my synchronized display of Christmas now speaking of the Trans-Siberian Orchestra and the song Wizards of Winter, we get to a number one song. Now back in 2004, a man named Carson Williams, who was an electrical engineer, put up the OG video of animated Christmas lights. By today's standards this is nothing special, but back then the world went nuts over the video. The song and the video were even picked up by Miller Lite and used in their TV ads for the following two years. Well, I hope you liked those songs for Christmas displays. If you do a Christmas display, hop over to the Facebook page and share some photos with the uh, rest of the family. And perhaps you could also suggest some songs that you use in your Christmas displays or ones that you think would make great additions to this list. Okay, so for the last segment for this episode, let's change tact. For those of you who follow my Facebook page or are members of other Christmas Facebook groups may have seen my posts on a new hobby I have, collecting Christmas vinyl. So far, I only have about 10, but one of the ones that I found is an audio version of the Christmas Carol, so I thought I would play the first chapter of it here. So I've plugged in the turntable to my computer so hopefully we'll capture the feel of the vinyl with the hisses and popping and clicking. I was thinking of playing a chapter at the end of each episode leading up to Christmas. Let me know if that's something you'd be interested in listening to. This will also serve as the outro to this month's episode. So before we play it, I would like to take this opportunity to thank everyone for their ongoing support of the podcast. And I look forward to catching up with people on the social medias. I love receiving your comments and emails. And remember, I have stickers to give away to anyone who leaves a five-star review on iTunes. So if you leave a review... Don't forget to get in contact with me and let me know. And at that point, I'll grab some details off you and send you out a sticker. So before I drop the needle on the vinyl, as usual, be excellent to each other and rock on. And I hope you enjoy this first chapter of A Christmas Carol Audio Edition. Marley was dead. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. 
Scrooge and he were partners for many years, and Scrooge never painted out old Marley's name. There it stood above the warehouse door, Scrooge and Marley. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, was Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. The door opened to let two people in. They were portly gentlemen with books and papers in their hands. Scrooge and Marley, I believe. Uh, have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Mr. Marley's been dead these seven years. He died seven years ago this very night. We have no doubt his liberality is well represented by his surviving partner. At this festive season, Mr. Scrooge, it is desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute, who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessaries. Are there no prisons? Ah, plenty of prisons. And the union workhouses, are they still in operation? They are. I wish I could say they were not. What shall I put you down for, Mr. Scrooge? Nothing. You will wish to remain anonymous? I wish to be left alone. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make other people merry. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Seeing that it would be useless to pursue their point, the gentleman withdrew. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy with all, and Scrooge could hear the people in the court outside go wheezing up and down, beating their hands upon their breasts and stamping their feet upon the pavement stones to warm them. The owner of one scant young nose stooped down at Scrooge's keyhole to regale him with a Christmas card. bless you, merry gentlemen, may nothing you dismay. dismounted from his stool and tacitly admitted the fact to the expectant clerk, who instantly snuffed his candle out and put on his hat. You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose. If quite convenient, sir. It's not convenient, and it's not fair. If I was to stop half a crown for it, you'd think yourself ill-used, I'll be bound. And yet you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work. 
It's only once a year, sir. That's a poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. But I suppose you must have the whole day. Well, be here all the earlier next morning. Scrooge walked out with a growl. He took his melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern and went home to bed. He put on his dressing gown and slippers and his nightcap, and he sat down before the fire to take his gruel. It was a very low fire indeed. He was obliged to sit close to it before he could extract the least sensation of warmth from such a handful of fuel. As he threw his head back in the chair, his glance happened to rest upon a bell, a disused bell that hung in the room. It was with great astonishment and with a strange, inexplicable dread that as he looked, he saw this bell begin to swing. It swung so softly in the outset that it scarcely made a sound, but soon it rang out loudly and so did every bell in the house. <laughs> 